You're listening to audio from NC Worship, the Sunday morning worship gathering of Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. Jump in, open with open your Bible to John three. Uh, we're going to get there in a minute, but you can start turning over there. There is Bibles come down the aisle. If you don't have one, just grab one from him, and he'll help you out there. Um, what I love, kind of when I it, Russell threw this out at me, John three. I want you to preach that and. As many times as I've preached, I don't think I've ever preached on the passage that surrounds John 3.16. And so when I first kind of started digging, there was like, oh, everybody knows that. Like I wanted to find something, some weird book that nobody's read and everybody walks away going, oh, that was, gosh, I've never seen. John 3, how are you going to reinvent the, you know, kind of an idea? And so my heart today is that what y'all experience in this next Russell gave me 35 minutes. What, what usually I take an hour, I'm going to condense down to 35 minutes. What I experienced this last week because it wrecked me completely. And so um, as we get in there, I'm going to ask you all to stand as we read I, God's word. We're going to go John 3, 1 through 21. Um, before we start off, I, just, I, I do want you to know that Russell and I, one of the things that I, when we connected... When you're in the church leadership pastor world, um, you'll realize that you're going to run into a lot of guys that take themselves way too seriously and the gospel not serious enough. Then you hit guys that take the gospel ridiculously seriously and then themselves not enough. And they're just funny. And Russell and I's relationships like that. I think we go, hey, dude, I need to tell you something serious. And then it's like 17 jokes and then the confession of whatever it is and then the next 34 jokes. And it's just... And that's the amazing, that's who your leader is, a guy who loves Jesus, loves the gospel, and loves to have fun because God created this world to be fun. And so I want to jump in um, as we read through this and just have some fun, but also allow God to really speak truth. John 3, starting in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, you, we, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must 
the Son of God be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Read this verse with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we just, um, we ask that your voice is the loudest in the room. That what we don't have here is information exchange because the last thing we need is just more information. We need a story that rips into our soul and goes into us and transforms us and makes us completely different. Father, for the ones in this room that have heard John 3.16 close to a million times, may it be fresh and new. For those that are hearing it for the first time, may it not seem crazy, but it may be a story of you pursuing them. We love you, God. May you be in complete control in these next few minutes. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. A um, couple years back, I had a friend of mine that said, hey, I, I want to take you to one of the top restaurants in Dallas. Russell said, a city north of here. Russell said, don't say where I'm from. Um, and I, so I went and he took me, came pick me up. We took off and we started going to this place. It was like 40 minutes away. And as we kept on driving, I'm asking him questions. Where are we going? He wouldn't really answer it. We picked up other friends and people and family along the way. By the time we got there, there was eight of us sitting. It's kind of a funky restaurant, but he kept on saying it's one of the top rated restaurants here. And we went in and he goes, I'm going to order everything for you. So you don't even need to look at the menu. Don't go with people that do that. But we did then. So he starts ordering. He's like, I'm going to take the lasagna. We're going to have chicken enchiladas. We're going to have beef nachos. You can already tell lasagna and chicken enchiladas, you Don't go to those restaurants. And he keeps on piling on just more and more kinds of soup. Anything that had a meat name, I think he threw into what we were eating. And they began to bring it out. And there was about just nine or ten plates everywhere. But it it just seemed weird. I'm going, this doesn't seem right. This just funky. He's like, it's so good. Try it. So we went in, started eating the nachos with huge beef on top, and then this chicken enchilada, and we start to eat. And pretty soon, like three or four chews, you're, you're going, this, this isn't right. Um, this, and you're kind of like trying to figure out, but you don't want to hurt his feelings. It's top rated for you don't know what at this point, and you're just struggling. And then I go, so what, what's the deal? He goes, dude, this is the top vegan restaurant in all of Dallas. And I said, shame on you. Like, shame... Just who does this? Like, I'm not against vegetables. Just give me broccoli. Don't hide it in nachos. 
Just, I'll, I'll, I'll just be one of the guys eating the tree in the corner eating broccoli. Don't squish it and make it look like chicken. Like that just doesn't work. And the more I'm just, and then the more I know, I'm just like, uh, it's just getting worse and worse. And then my mind's going, so what's, what's making the chicken if it's not a chicken? Like, and what I'm just, and it just seems to be getting horrible. I mean, just get me a salad, just a salad. The vegan restaurant doesn't carry salads. Why? Because they want to make it weird. And I'm sitting there eating this stuff. And I'm not, again, if you're, sorry, if you're vegan, it's just, I wasn't expecting it, wasn't knowing this thing. And I feel like too often that's almost what happens with scripture and the gospel and the Bible is we try to make it palatable. And so we hide it in things and we, we make it into like this weird and we serve it and we're, we're seeing, do they like it? Are they like, oh, he's not like it. Okay, we got to tell him. Um, so this is Jesus. <laughs> yeah, sometimes life's tough. Um, and I mean, we just continue to try to pull it out. And I think whenever we hide it into two things, it creates two um, expressions out of us, two emotions out of us. And I also think Satan goes after us and attacks us in two different ways. One of those ways is that he, he makes you believe that something is real when it isn't. Like some of us believe something that's not the gospel and Satan loves it. And he's going to keep on, yeah, more nachos, more enchiladas. Yeah, that's chicken. And he's going to continue feeding and he's going to continue giving it because it allows him to stay in control without, and you think that you're in this gospel Christian world when you're not. The other thing is for those of us that don't know what it really, it causes us to doubt all the time. And, and I don't think I'm alone here. I've been a Christian now for about 20 years, and I don't think I'm alone to say that throughout 20 years, I've probably doubted my salvation 80 times. Would a Christian do that? I mean, I just did a dumb, would, would a if I was truly, when I read the Bible, if I was truly saved, would I have done that? It, would I think that? Would I actually wonder and question and doubt God? Would I be that dude? And I don't think I'm alone. And I think when we jump into this passage, what we see is this unbelievable dialogue between Nicodemus, a Jewish, smart, brilliant thinker, and Jesus. And I love jumping in and reading these stories of seeing Jesus dialogue and interact with people. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, not to be too crazy or weird, but to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. And when he asks a question, go, how would I have asked that? How how would I have worded that question? So we're going to start and just kind of go piece by piece. And verses one and two, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he goes up to Jesus and he takes off at night. There's all kinds of questions about why he, why he went at night. Um, I think because he kind of wanted to be away from the crowd and have good conversation. And so he went to Jesus at night. It's this rabbi, this great thinker. We find out later that he's a teacher of the Jews. So he has influence. He has knowledge. He has unbelievable understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is going to use an Old Testament passage to talk to him. So he knows the Bible really, really, really well. And he approaches Jesus and he goes, hey, so what are you? 
You're doing some crazy stuff. What are you? Are you a messiah? Are you a teacher? Are you a prophet? Just kind of let me know a little bit more about who you are because I like it. You're intriguing, but I, I just I can't figure it out. And Jesus responds with, I, I kind of, when I read this, I thought Jesus was a jerk because he doesn't answer his question. Y'all have people like that. You're like, hey, what are we having for dinner? Well, um, yesterday I had hamburgers. You're like, that, that didn't answer it. And I feel like that's kind of what Jesus did here is Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like if I'm Nicodemus, I go, dude, I didn't ask that. Like you just made it weird on us. Um, I just wanted to ask who you were. But if you look up in two, the last two verses in chapter two basically says, but Jesus knows their heart. So he actually knew what he was asking. He actually knew. He said, I'm, I'm going to get around because, and I think a lot of us do that. We ask questions that we think we need to know the answer to. And Jesus goes, this is actually what you need to know. You're asking, some, you're asking good questions, but that's actually not what you need to know. And he begins to answer it. And so Jesus um, throws this out there and he coins a phrase here. He coins this phrase, born again, or also born from above. He, he throws out this new phrase that all of a sudden they're going, okay. Nicodemus is like, I've read the whole Bible, all of the Old Testament. I've never heard that word. Where'd you come up with that one? And he throws out a new language. And I would say for us, some of us need new language because we're over-churched in the way we talk. And it's numbed our souls. It's kind of brought, it, it just, it's become so commonplace that nothing revives in us. That nothing absolutely transforms our soul because we use the words that we've always known. And so when Jesus coins this phrase and throws it out there, you must be born again. It's fascinating to think about this, that he throws out this and then he throws out, he knows he just made that up. He knows he just made that phrase up and he's like, you must be born again. You imagine Jesus going, what you got? You probably have a question about that. I mean, you, you got to come back after me. And he, sw- he turns around and he answers it in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Does this not sound like a five-year-old asking question? Like, how can... How can he be born if he's old? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I read that and I went, that's absurd and funny. And I think Nicodemus is just jacking with Jesus at this time. I think he's just going, I'm just going to mess with you. You didn't answer my question, so I'm going to ask an absurd question. Then I realized that this is a question that everybody asks in their room by themselves late at night a lot of times. What does it look like for me to actually be saved? What does it look like for Jesus actually to train? And and here's the problem, is usually churches aren't answering this question, but people are asking it in their private life, in in their secret life, and just like little small group going, what does it look like? If I'm truly transformed by the gospel, what does this look like? And usually this is how we answer the question. And, and I'll say, this question, this phrase, this struggle ripped me apart from the beginning. We planted our church. We were struggling with, okay, what, what are we going to call this? When somebody comes and Jesus radically transforms their heart, what are we going to call this? Because, I mean, I, I struggle with it going like, so did you, I mean, were you born again? 
I'm like, oh, nobody knows what that means. I'm like, work. Jesus saved me. Uh, that freaks the world out. Um, but Jesus came into my heart. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how that happened. And so it was just like we struggled with the wording of what this was. And so we came up with all these different ways, and we struggled. And, we, and, and here's what we came down to is one of the leaders in the church just looked at me and said, you're not struggling with the wordage. You don't know what it does. You don't know what it is when Jesus comes and wrecks your soul for good. And so we usually ask this question like this. What does it mean to be born again? We ask the question, so what's it mean when I, when I say the prayer? You know, the guy came in front of me and he said, anybody who wants Jesus in their heart, anybody who doesn't want to sin anymore and wants to see heaven, just say this prayer with me. And so you say that prayer. Other one said, so... Um, when you know more about Jesus. I mean, this, this is the new teaching, that we need to know more about Jesus. You need to know more. You need to understand more. Once you grasp more, then you're going to be completely, and this is intellectual assent. You feel like you need to know more information to be, born, to be transformed, to be born again. What about so when your behavior looks more like Jesus, when you have kind of a behavior transformation, you act more like him? And maybe this isn't a question like this. Maybe this is how we look at people and go, I don't think they're a Christian. They do this. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they seem, their world's all kind of weird and messed up. The fourth one is when our life has Christian things in it. This is when Monday through Saturday looks horrible, but Sunday we get up and we charge in here. And we almost have like a calendar of knowing when we've, I've been to church 72%, that's passing, I'm in. I did the math. It's actually 68, you missed two. Those were holidays, so they're bonus, vacation days. I'm back to 72. And I mean, it's like how we work it out to try to figure out how Christian is our life. The fifth thing is um, when we, and, and here, this one was hard for me. We can point to the moment. We have that moment. Some of us were sitting on our bed and Jesus just radically, and, and you remember Jesus transforming you and it was incredible and it was amazing. Some of you remember a disciple now or, you know, a Christian camp or something that you came for. Some of you were on a bus and all of a sudden somebody came up and just witnessed to you and it was unbelievable and you have this moment. And let me, I don't want to take anything away from those that have had this moment. For those of us that haven't, me, I hate hearing about the moment. Let me just be honest because I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's Tuesday or when. I don't know. I mean, it just, it seemed like one day I woke up and it was like, this is, this is Jesus loving me. I, I want the moment because I wish I could point to June 12th, 1993 was an amazing day and I remember it and everything transformed. But for me, I don't have that and I hated it because it was always me questioning and wondering, has Jesus redeemed my soul? And I even created dates. I was like, you know, November 2nd. And I would just like create a date and I would try to make a moment. Like I'm going to sit on the edge of my bed. Those stories are cool. So I'd sit on the edge of my bed and read a crazy book. I'd find like C.S. Lewis. I didn't understand anything he said. So I'd read that and go, Jesus is great. Make like a date. I mean, that's how crazy and dumb this was. 
And what ends up happening is we end up asking this question that Nicodemus said, what does it look like for you to be born again? What does it look like for Jesus to redeem your soul? Jesus ends up answering what this looks like in 5 through 8. In verse 5, he says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Quickly walk through these. Basically, he says, water and spirit, that there is a repentance and a cleansing, and then a life that's completely different. We say all the time that salvation is you are saved from something and to something. You are saved from and out of something, and you're saved to something. This is the water and the spirit working itself out. And what's crazy, and then, so, so this, is, this is Jesus toying with us, I think, right here. Like, I read this, and I actually went, now he's just messing with me. Like, because I thought I had the perfect sermon, and then he messed with me. Because here it goes. He goes, be born again. What does that tell you to do? That tells you to be born again. What do I need to do? Be born again. Okay, I'm going to go be born again. And then here he goes, but you can't do it. That's like a miraculous thing from God. You just told me to do something I can't do. That's like coming up and going, Caleb, I need you to dunk the basketball. That's not cool. Like, you know, six foot and fat. Like, that's not going to work. And here, you're calling me to do something. Like, I felt like Jesus was just yanking this at me going, can you do this? Can you, can you, can you pull this off? And then I jumped in verses 9 through 15, and this is where God wrecked my soul this week. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And stop in verse 13 because just this dialogue is... Nicodemus is going, okay, now how does this happen? So it, it kind of went from a what to a, okay, flesh this out a little bit. Tell, tell us a little bit more. You got me intrigued. You asked weird questions. You told me things I can't do. Tell me what this is going to look like. And he says, wait, wait, but you're a teacher of Israel. You should know this. The entire Old Testament talked about it. You should know these things. And, and I feel like he was looking at me and going, Caleb, you should know this. I mean, I sent you to school to learn it. Like, he, they were supposed to teach you everything in those four years. Just pack it in there. You were supposed to get this. And I'm going, but I don't. I don't get what this looks like. I don't get what this means. I don't get how this really works itself out. And then he kind of does this. He goes, wait, wait. So I'm going to tell you things earthly, but I... And then you want to understand heavenly things? And here's where this gets. Is some of us, what our question is, is we're trying to figure out how this life's going to work out. And we're asking way beyond questions when Jesus is going, just understand me. Just get me. 
You're asking questions that are way out there. You're trying to get answers that are way asphyxiated out in the future, and I just need you to get me. And then he answers with this weird, out-of-context, it seems, story. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up. I wonder if John just kind of ran out of stuff and he's like, let's, let's throw Moses in there. That'll give some credibility. And then when you go and you read this story in Numbers, what happened was the Israelites were, the, the people were kind of freed. God had freed them out of slavery and bondage. And so they're taking off, they're running, they're free from slavery and bondage. They're out and they're heading towards the promised land. God's told them, God's revealed it, God, and they're in a really good place, but every now and then they'll kind of struggle and they don't like the life and they're frustrated and they're, they're trying to see what the, you know, what's going on here. And so they would grumble and complain, they would rebel and they would fight and they, would, they just didn't like it. And God would continue. God gave them manna, God gave them water, gave them new shoes. I mean, he gave them everything that they needed and they continued to rebel to the point God said, fine, have it your way. And he threw snakes down on the earth to punish them. So he threw these snakes down and they're all around. And now the people are trying to live life and trying to having the same things, manna and water and shoes headed towards the promised land with snakes all around them. And the venom would bite them and they were getting sick and they were dying. And then they finally cried out and said, God, help us. Just do something. Free us from this. Get us. And so God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Moses, Make a bronze statue out of a snake, put it on a stick, and then stick it out in front of them. And whoever looks at the snake on a stick will be saved. Whoever looks and actually believes that that's going to do everything, look at the snake and believe. And here's what we have is this unbelievable imagery of an object raised up on a stick that gives life and saves people. And then he foreshadows that Christ will be raised up on a stick. And if you look to him, you'll be saved. And he begins to unload that. And here's where I want to land. For those of y'all that are struggling with, am I saved? What does this look like? You're wrestling, you're asking those questions. Is in the middle of your mess. You've been freed from a lot of slavery and bondage. You're heading towards the promised land imagery for heaven, you're taking off in this way. And you have snake and you have war, and this world just seems to be getting you down. It just seems to be creeping in every area of your life. I personally think he chose snakes because one big bear isn't usually what we're fighting. It's usually small little things that just seem to creep into every aspect of your life. And if you'll look at the thing on a stick in front of you, you'll be saved. If you look at Christ raised up on the cross in front of you, you'll be saved. Unbelievable imagery that he lays out. And then in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him, whoever actually puts their everything in him, who actually thinks this guy is going to do it. 
who actually says, I'm giving it all. I'm, I'm putting all hope, all trust in. That's what's going to save me. And then here comes the famous verse, in its context. In its context is unbelievable. Because now I read it and I think about me in a messed up place with little snakes all through my life and and creeping in and making everything really tough and really miserable, but having all of the religious answers and having all of what Nicodemus thought, knowing the Old Testament, knowing the stories and knowing all this stuff. And then I read this and it transforms everything for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just unpacking that verse a little bit. For God so loved. That word so is a, it wants to break apart the enormity of it. God so loved the world. That word world is also understand that any place that needs grace, any place that needs grace, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He initiated, he went after, he didn't wait for you, he went after you in the midst of your mess. He gave his past tense too. He doesn't have to keep doing it. He doesn't have to keep creating it. He doesn't have to keep on saving you. He doesn't have to keep on, his son's not perpetually dying for you. One time for your soul. This does so much for me. He did it while I was still in my mess, while I was still in my sin. That frees you up a ton. If he did it before you sinned, it means he knew it, and he didn't, he's not comparing. He's not looking at it going, I didn't expect you to do that. you, You pulled a fast one on me. I'd never seen that sin before, and you created it, and now I'm lost. He's going, I know you'd do that. And I died for you before. No, I died for you because you needed it. I died for you because your soul needs to be redeemed. And I died because it's glorious. And then we have 17 through 21 that, that reveals so much light on what the gospel is and what it looks like to live in this world and on mission that I just want to sit here for a little bit. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. What I think we need to understand here is this is more about, for me, this is more about the mission of the church, Big C, and near town. Is what it looks like for God to not condemn the world, but to pursue and save the world. Now, now it's easy for that to be a theological understanding. It's easy to grasp that in my head going, God didn't come to condemn, he came to save. It's harder when now my practical interactions with my boss tells him that. It's now, it's now harder when my kids are acting crazy and I have to tell them, God didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. Because how we interact ends up being condemnation way too often. How we talk, how we pray, how we think, how we work, how we operate. 
And so this becomes when this verse is true in the middle of the snakes, you're there with them. All you're doing now with your neighbors, with your friends, with your kids and anything, you have the snakes around, you're going, look there. It's not, you're not up there with Moses going, y'all should be looking up here. Y'all are idiots. I found it. What took so long? You're down in the mess with the snakes going, look where I'm looking. Look what I'm staring at. And that happens in your biggest pain, your biggest struggle, your biggest weakness, your biggest hurt, your biggest joy. Look at, look up there. Finishing 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The truth of the matter is is that it's a lot safer oftentimes just be in the darkness. People don't rip you apart. You don't have to worry about what other people think. You don't have to worry about whatever people say. You don't have to, I mean, you just, you get to kind of be in your own world. And there's several ways that we do this. Some of it, we use a ton of religious language. We hide so much in Christian Bible studies. How many of y'all in like seven this week? I mean, you're like, I, they need to create more days because Beth Moore came out with another book. We need, I mean, we need more. We need more things. We need more day. We need, I, I, a time slot just opened up at 6.30 a.m. I'm going to wake, and so we need a Bible study. And we hide, and we found our way to hide in that darkness. Some of us hide in darkness by just not being in community. We're off on our own. We're off in our own life. We're off in our own world. We're off in our own whatever. And we have nobody around us that actually goes into our life. Some of us hide with just flat-out rebellion. And it's easier to own it. Yeah, I'm the guy that does this. I, that, that's just who I am, and it's easier. So you think that you're in the light, but you use your self-expression and self-confession to be in darkness. And what I love about the gospel is when this begins to work itself out, all of a sudden, it just becomes people of true repentance and true confession. And you don't have to hide in Bible studies anymore. You don't have to hide in who you think you should be. You don't have to hide in church circles. You don't have to hide in not going to church at all because they're going to condemn you. Instead, you get to be in the midst of this. And while I was wrestling with this, I was driving and this song came on. And the lyrics of this song um, really hit me to realize, I think this is me, sadly. And I think, this is, I, I think this is probably a prayer to Jesus that I've had. I want to hide the truth. I want to shelter you. But with the beast inside, there's nowhere we can hide. No matter what we breed, we still are made of greed. This is my kingdom come. When you feel my heat, look into my eyes. It's where my demons hide. Don't get too close. It's dark inside. It's where my demons hide. At the curtain's call, it's the last of all. 
When the lights fade out, all the sinners crawl. So they dug your grave, and the masquerade will come calling out at the mess you've made. Don't want to let you down, but I'm hellbound. Though this is all for you, don't want to hide the truth. They say it's what you make. I say it's up to fate. It's woven in my soul. I need to let you go. And way too often, that's, I want to hide because I got some messed up demons inside. And they show up at the worst possible times. And when the gospel takes root and redeems and pursues and transforms, all of a sudden we become people that we can confess this and live this and be in it. We no longer have to be Nicodemus and hide behind all the knowledge that we have, all the understanding of the Bible, and we just become people that repent and people that run after it. And all of a sudden, that church becomes the most missional, attractive church in the world because people no longer have to relate to this song and go, yeah, that's me. One of the the most missional thing you can do, yes, invite your friends, yes, invite your neighbor, yes, talk to them, but just be real. The person that's sitting in the chair right now with with all your questions, with all your doubts, with all your thoughts, Talk about that with your coworkers and your family and your kids. Because when that happens, when that transforms, all of a sudden this church takes root and takes off. Because it's the safest place in the world to talk about Jesus and let him bring you to life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Neartown Church. If you want to talk to someone about what you've heard today, please visit neartownchurch.org and click the contact button.